Welcome back to One Decision. I'm Julia McFarlane. We're talking to NBA star Enes Kanter Freedom of the Boston Celtics and discussing his extraordinary human rights activism. Freedom cuts a lonely figure in the world of sport for taking on Beijing and the Chinese Communist Party's track on human rights. A newly minted United States citizen as of last December, Freedom has been making full use of the First Amendment to the consternation of the Chinese government and even his colleagues in the world of basketball and sports. From his free-to-bet trainers he's worn on the court in Madison Square Garden to his social media posts calling out sportswear giant Nike for its business dealings in China, Freedom has been making a name for himself off the courts as well. But at what cost? Let's bring in Sir Richard Dearlove, former chief of MI6, Britain's secret intelligence service, for his thoughts on our interview and the plight of Uyghurs in China. Richard, what is the history of this so-called autonomous region of Xinjiang? It's China's biggest province. It shares a border with a lot of Central Asian countries like Mongolia and Kazakhstan. And many of the people living there have perhaps more in common with those Central Asian countries than with people in Central China. So what is the history of that region and why is it so troubled? Essentially, they're Turkic people um, with you know, Turkic civilization and Turkic culture, so they're Muslim. Um, I mean, as, as far as I understand, it's a relatively moderate form of the Muslim religion, but, um, you know, civil society in that area is organised along, or has been organised along traditional lines, not along, you know, lines dictated by the Communist Party of China. Um, and therefore, you, you you have this sort of cultural clash. I, I mean, it's a, it's a little bit like Tibet, you know, where up until there's been extensive immigration from Han Chinese, you know, the Han Chinese are not the sort of dominant ethnic group or not the dominant influence. As far as one can understand, and, I, you know, I'm sure we've all read extensively about it, you've got large chunks of the population in re-education camps. Um, and therefore, separated families, children in, um, in, in in sort of party schools and separated from their parents. I mean, forcible eating of pork, for example, in the re-education camps as part of this sort of program of minimising Uyghur, Uyghur culture. Um, and I suppose, really, it's a push to destroy the particular ethnicity of the region. Um, I mean, one sees many, many historic examples of this. I mean, probably the, the most terrifying, the worst examples were in Soviet Russia by Stalin. Um, and, uh, you know, whole populations were moved and dispersed in order to break down local identity. I mean, I think what's interesting about Chinese domestic policy is that the Communist Party will allow a certain amount of certain level of criticism, will allow um, a certain level of local identity as long as it doesn't, as it were, threaten the organizational primacy and prominence of the structures that, as it were, 
control the country, which are party structures. Um, and I, you see this being played out, you know, in other parts of China as well. Anything which is organizationally threatening. Um, I remember, I mean, some of my professional contacts with the Chinese, um, which is, is, is a different example, but it's relevant to this particular context. Um, talking to the Chinese, and they were neurotic about Falun Gong organization. Because Falun Gong um, is ideological, it's conspiratorial, it's highly organized. It actually <laughs> contains many elements which are rather similar to the origins of the Communist Party. Uh, and uh, the, 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 this sort of competing ideological and religious influence, and, and that certainly is, I think, one of the reasons why um, you know, they're trying to pull the Uyghurs away from their Turkic roots and change it into a classic Chinese society. Right. And you rightly, you know, you, you rightly pointed, pointed out these these detention centres. And we don't know exactly what goes on in, in these camps. China refers to them as re-education camps, which are in use as part of a de-radicalization program that they're running on. But we know from Chinese whistleblowers and family members of people who've been detained there or people who uh, are linked to people who've been detained there, they've recounted horrific stories of forced labor, torture, um, systematic forced birth control and a litany of, of other alleged abuse abuses. Uh, how much... Yeah, how much do we know of 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 what's what's going on there? And you know, we've had the U.S. government making a determination that what was happening in Xinjiang essentially amounted to a cultural genocide. Why hasn't that made really the international shockwaves that it should have? Given how often we keep saying never again. Well, I think it demonstrates the ability of the Chinese to, as it were dominate and influence the international narrative. Um, I mean, I, the evidence is stacked against the Chinese official version, but they do have an official version. Um, and I mean, I think that pattern is repeated in a number of other places, a number of other countries. I, I, I mean, China has a, has, I could give you a stack of examples, not least the pandemic. You know, the Chinese narrative uh, has been the dominant narrative. Um, and there's a reluctance, even on the part of our own scientists uh, in the West, to, you know, criticize and attack the Chinese version of events, which I think we know, you know, is heavily influenced, heavily constructed, heavily oriented towards the way that they want this issue to be perceived. Um, and, I mean, the Chinese are well organised to make sure that their, you know, version of events is the dominant one. I, I think what the international community needs in relation to this area probably, you know, is a, is a UN inspection team to go in there and see what's going on. But, of course, the Chinese almost for sure are not going to allow that. Um, 
Well, that that's exactly what the Australians were asking for to investigate the the source of the pandemic. Scott, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison wanted uh, independent investigators to to access Wuhan, and the Chinese reacted incredibly angrily to to that, and uh, and in in many ways sort of yeah, punished Australia. Interference in their internal affairs, and they will not brook, you know, that sort of uh, you know intrusion into areas where they <laughs> they don't want to be subject to scrutiny. But I, I mean, I think there's so much evidence now emerging in the public domain about the way that the Uyghurs have been treated that uh, you could argue that the, the, the Chinese are losing control of the story. Um, it seems that in in this, obviously China is desperate to main to to keep its grip on its narrative both at home and overseas it it seems that china wants the world to respect china to leave it to its own affairs to take it seriously but it doesn't seem really to want the world to make friends with China, right? I mean, they have this massive propaganda machine around the world uh, trying to solidify this narrative you speak of. You have these these very assertive ambassadors who you will see vociferously defending the Chinese government on cable news, on the Sunday shows. And you have this this Christine, Christine Lee figure in the UK who you mentioned, who was the centre of that MI5 warning about yeah. agents of the Chinese government seeking to influence lawmakers and policy to be more China friendly. What is it exactly that they're trying to do here? How does China want to engage with the world on its own terms? Because it doesn't really seem like, like Beijing wants the world's to be friends with it, right? Well, actually, this is a very interesting issue. I mean, I think that you know China's position has shifted very significantly over the past five years, um, since particularly you know Xi Jinping's leadership has become predominant, and you know he looks as though he's appointed for life or near life term. Um, and you know, you've mentioned the phenomenon of the what they call the wolf warrior diplomats who are very aggressive about, you know, shouting down criticism of China and reacting, you know, very badly to it. Um, but, I, I, I mean, China at one point, if you go back five years or more, was rather successful at soft diplomacy. Um, and, you know, it, it, it wasn't in the position where it's started to sort of violate international agreements and behave in an autonomous manner. I, I mean, you could argue, and I mean, I've heard it argued that in a way, you know, Xi Jinping, has he lost the plot? Uh, because whereas the world had quite a benign attitude towards China and was uh, uh, prepared to tolerate um, some aspects of its behavior. I, I mean, suddenly you have got many countries, you know, forming up now to form also almost a sort of front, um, not to take China on, but just not to accept their version of events. Uh, you know, I, I, I often wonder, you know, whether Xi Jinping isn't in the process of overplaying his hand. I think there will be many officials, senior officials in China, <laughs> who question, well, of course, not publicly, but in their own minds, what's going on. Because China is basically losing friends 
It's losing influence. Um, it's becoming more isolation. I, I, I think there will be aspects of, as it were, judgment within the leadership of the People's Republic of China who are, who are saying, you know, has Xi Jinping actually got this right? Because, you know, we, we're, we're in a confrontational situation with the United States. What benefit does that bring China? Nothing except aggravation and trouble. We're bad relationship deteriorating with Australia, a very important trading partner. Uh, certainly a poor relationship with many countries in the EU getting worse. Um, confrontational relationship with India. Um, and a poor relationship with Japan as well. Um, and this was, was not the case, if you look back. Um, look at the attitude of the British government, you know, under when Cameron was prime minister. You know, the UK's policy was, you know, make friends with China. We're going to have a special relationship with China. We're going to be, we're going to be a privileged trading partner. Look how misguided that looks today. You... you are hinting at uh, pinning this 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 change in Chinese strategy uh, with the arrival of, of Xi Jinping. I wanted to ask you, he is a man on a mission, right? He wants to radically transform China. Uh, some experts say what he wants to do is return the country to its former status as the world superpower when during the Ming dynasty, uh, it was incredibly wealthy to a boom in trade. It was the, uh, arguably, the world superpower back then. And so for Xi Jinping, to, to, to bring it back to, to the, the business of sports and, and the Olympics and the Winter Olympics um, as they're getting underway, for Xi Jinping, hosting the Olympics and other such global events, that's part of that mission, right? It's part of the soft power strategy in his mission. Yeah, I is- agree. Of course it is. And that China hosts these events, you know, brings great prestige within China to the leadership. But of course, you know, they're going wrong. Um, look what's happening, you know, to the Winter Olympics. I, I, I mean, we might be reaching a point reasonably soon whereby teams actually start withdrawing and refusing to compete. I mean, we haven't quite got that far, but, you know, there's going to be no official delegations. Okay, that doesn't sort of stop the games, but it certainly detracts from their status. Um, We're in a a situation where many countries are are recalibrating and reconsidering their attitude and their policy towards China. What's going on with... Beijing strategy. You, you, you say that this that hosting the Olympics and these global events is important for Beijing's uh, international prestige and how it's regarded by the international community. What, what? How can you account for the, the inconsistency with with the Chinese Communist Party wanting to be an Olympic host country? Uh, Remember, the Olympic Charter has, you know, the host nation must commit to upholding human dignity and all sorts of, and uh, the preservation of human rights. How can the, how can Beijing want to put on a spread like the Olympics and, 
you know, talk about sport crossing borders and uniting nations. And then at the same time, as you rightly point out, the crackdown on human rights protesters, you know, Hong Kong students uh, and the way it silences its critics, the way it treats people like Peng Shui, who all she did was speak out about an alleged assault that happened to her. Um, I think it it shows that the Chinese, you know, want, want the world to be the way it wants it to be, and they're not really prepared to compromise. So they want the prestige, they want the admiration, they are a coming superpower, whether we like it or not. But at the same time, it's on their own terms, and their own terms are going to be largely unacceptable outside China. So there will, I, I, I mean, I, I, I think, China will face at some point an existential crisis about this identity that it's pushing very hard. Um, and we'll see. But, you know, communist parties are never quite what we imagine them to be from the outside. I just want to ask you about Enna's freedom. Um, you know, he... He is, of course, incredibly outspoken about China's human rights record. He's acknowledged that he could be dropped from the league, that he probably will never get any big name sponsors. That He says that's a price that he feels is worth paying uh, in order to speak freely about all of these injustices that we've mentioned. Are you worried about his safety? Do you think he's fine to keep speaking out? Like this, mind you, given he's also a target for President yeah, Erdogan. Yeah, maybe being Tur- being originally Turkish Erdogan is <laughs> perhaps more of a problem. I mean, the Chinese um, do not have at the moment <laughs> the sort of reputation uh, that the Russians have had for rubbing out troublesome dissidents, and you know, historically, the Russians have always dealt severely with those that they consider their own, you know, so you can start with Trotsky in Mexico um, and, uh, and, and you can have, you know, I could pull up many other examples. I think that the Chinese are very good at sort of silencing critics through manipulation of their circumstances. Uh, and of course, the NBA as a franchise is massively popular in China, particularly when the first Chinese players appeared in NBA teams. Um, and, you know, Ennis Freedom puts on a pair of shoes that says free Tibet, and within 12 hours, the Boston Celtic games have been rubbed off the schedule in and his name is black and out is his name is yeah, censored well, on Weibo. You know, this is exactly what how the Chinese, you know, are going to react to that. I I I think um I don't personally believe he's in great danger, physical danger from the Chinese. Um they'll just try to rubbish him and rubbish his career. Um remember that the Turks have put out I don't know how many arrest warrants against um, Ennis Freedom. Uh, and I, I think if he ended up in a country uh, which had close relations with Turkey and an extradition treaty, he might find himself on a plane um, traveling back to Ankara. Uh, and I, I think the Chinese are wary of touching people of other nationalities who criticize them other 
than trying to silence them and put them out of business. Do you think it all comes down to when you surpass a certain amount of money, when you are so rich, when your business or your industry is worth a certain amount, a certain figure, that all rules of international law do not apply and you can basically do what you want. And governments, they can accuse you of genocide, they can accuse you of crimes against humanity. But when your business is worth that much, you are able to act with impunity. Well, I'm not sure I'd go quite that far. And of course, you know, you give that example and then one immediately thinks of the 1936 Olympic Games um, in Berlin, you know, which were a sort of showcase for the Nazis. Um, And the world, you know, voluntarily participated. Uh, Maybe after the event, well, you know, later on, of course, deeply regretted the extent to which, you know, it had been a platform for the Nazi regime. I mean, I think it, it, it would be unfair to put it quite as bluntly. I mean, governments are sensitive to these issues and understand them. Um, I don't think they become mainline politics except... I mean, they are politics in themselves. What I mean is the, the sort of cancellation or the, you know, the suppression of these events. It doesn't happen unless you're in a really profound and deep crisis. But but I mean the the Biden administration, um, the 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 United States government accused Beijing of cultural genocide, and all President Biden has done has just said he doesn't want his diplomats to go to the Olympics. He could have gone way further. He could have announced yeah. a full boycott of the Olympics. He's still sending his athletes there. Uh, when the State Department is saying, don't bring your phones, don't bring your laptops because of, you know, cyber surveillance, all the kind of biometrics that athletes uh, may may face, President Biden isn't really sending a strong message with a diplomatic boycott of Beijing less than just a year after the government said that it was committing genocide. Um, absolutely. I, I mean, I agree with you. But I mean, I think what I would say is that you know the U.S. policy towards China as a debutante superpower, or whatever you like to call it, isn't fully formed. I mean, I think there's a certain amount of um, asking of questions, consideration, you know, as, as to how far the United States should go at the moment. Uh, you know, in confronting China on many of these issues. I, I mean, the, the key issue probably at the moment, um, you know, is the future of Taiwan. Uh, future of Hong Kong has been, as it were, the catalyst, but the future of Taiwan is, is more profound. Um, now, if the Chinese do at some point undertake an amphibious invasion of Taiwan, then I think one would see, you know, an escalation a, a huge escalation, you know, in global attitudes towards China, led by the United States. Uh, what does that entail, though? An escalation of attitudes is that more sort of words of condemnation, or do you think they would be compelled to do something in a physical sense? Well, that's a difficult question to answer. Um, I don't think that you can prevent, probably. A Chinese, a serious Chinese invasion of Taiwan. 
Um, but the consequences for China could be dire. Um, you could certainly do all sorts of things like blockade their ports. I mean, there are, there are all sorts of responses that you could make after the event. But is the West going to go to war with China to protect the independence of Taiwan? Um, it's going to do everything but. Uh, I mean, similarly, is, is Europe going to go to war with Russia over Ukraine? Can I ask one final question just on Enna's, Enna's Cantor freedom? And I just wanted to um, hark back to that uh, that day back in 2017 in Washington, where a group of Turkish, segue slightly because he's Turkish, a, um, a group of Kurdish protesters, uh, some of whom were American students, they were protesting as President Erdogan was meeting with the then President Trump in the White House. And you had uh, maybe half a dozen people were beaten up by Erdogan's bodyguards. And at the time, there was a huge amount of outrage that the Trump administration was seemingly turning a blind eye to the fact that American citizens and protesters were being assaulted by Turkish agents on American soil as they were exercising their constitutional right to protest. Uh, and then the charges of assault were actually dropped against all of those agents um, the, the the following year. What happened there? And do you think the same could happen now under the leadership of Joe Biden? Well, I think what I would say is that incidents and individuals don't make policy. And that's a really hard and tough thing to say, but what you have to bear in mind is the importance of Turkey's relationship as a member of NATO um, and its position, geopolitical position in, in, in southern Europe between Russia and the Mediterranean. Um, and I, I, I mean, as awful as it sounds, you know, you don't make, you, you don't make policy around these sorts of, of incidents. You can't. Um, uh, maybe you can handle the incidents differently. And I, I, I'm, a, I'm pretty surprised the way that the US didn't sort of follow through. But actually, interestingly, a similar thing happened during Xi Jinping's visit to the UK, where some Chinese protesters on the Mall um, got manhandled by the police. Um, and uh, there was a pretty sour follow-on after that incident. Um, I, mean, I mean, my question is, how how worried do you think Enna's Cantor freedom should be about Erdogan coming after him? I mean, he's issued like more than 10 warrants for his, his arrest, and if he continues to speak out against the Erdogan regime, could he see himself being a Fethullah Gulen? Uh, you know, will they will the regime target him uh, the more he speaks out, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you probably don't remember this, but the head of the PKK was abducted from Africa um, by um, the Turkish... Um, Secret Service, um, and and has since I mean since has been been in a, been in a Turkish prison. Okay, that's a terrorist organisation, but uh, I mean certainly the Turks 
had the military and intelligence capability to act beyond the law in various places. And I mean, someone like Ennis Freedom, um, I, I think, is physically more threatened by Erdogan um, and you know, sort of Erdogan's henchmen than, than certainly by the Chinese. I mean, he's, he's very aggravating to the Chinese. And, you know, they're probably working as we speak, you know, to prevent his NBA career from thriving. Um, but in- Do you think it matters at all that he's a US citizen? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, well, he is a US citizen and that does make it. But as I've said, individuals don't make policy by and large. I, I, I say by and large because there are exceptions. But, you know, if you look at this um, Iranian British lady who's been locked up in Iran, um, you know, to what extent does should that dictate the UK's Iranian policy? Uh, and I, I mean, you know, there's no question that the Iranians are holding her in order to pressurise the British government over this supposed unpaid bill um, for defence equipment that goes way back in time. Um, I, 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 I think these cases, um, which depend on individual incidents, are very, very hard to sort of calibrate uh, into a wider government policy um, and uh, I mean freedom I think freedom if he's going to have any problems they come in his direction from Turkey as long as Erdogan's in power anyway maybe Erdogan will lose the next election that's it for this episode of One Decision. I'm Julia McFarlane. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode and get in touch. What decisions have impacted your lives and your part of the world? We would love to hear from you. Find us on Twitter. Our handle is at One Decision Pod and we're on Facebook at One Decision Podcast. See you next time.